It's my privilege this morning to uh, welcome and introduce um, Reverend Joe Fisher, who's with us to bring God's word. Uh, Joe is on staff uh, with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at uh, Rutgers University. Uh, he's been here before. We have the privilege as a church to help support his work there. And he's about to kick off his second year uh, on the campus of Rutgers. And I would encourage us all as he as he does that, to be in prayer for him and for his work there. And uh, Joe, we're just glad you're here and, and welcome this morning. Well, good morning. Uh, it is really a joy to be with you all. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 46. I believe it's also printed there in the bulletin for you, uh, Psalm 46. Um, earlier, we uh, sang... Um, a Mighty Fortress is Our God, the hymn that was written by Martin Luther and is actually based on this psalm. Uh, and it was said of Luther that during the, the dark times of the Reformation that he would oftentimes be prone uh, to doubt and to despair. And it was during these times that he would turn to his friend, uh, Philip Melanchthon, and he would say to him, Come, Philip, let's sing the 46th psalm. And so perhaps in these difficult days that you find yourself in, uh, maybe you are prone to discouragement. Uh, perhaps you are prone to despair. And I'd invite you to join me this morning to read uh, the 46th Psalm uh, and to discover the, the protection and the presence that God has promised to those who trust him. So would you read with me the word of the Lord from Psalm 46? For the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have spoken. And now as we come to a time of meditating on your words, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would incline our hearts toward them. Father, we ask that you would expand our minds to grasp the heights, the depths, the breadth, the length of your love and of your truth. Lord, we ask that you would abend our will towards your ways that we might walk in the way of life. We ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Yeats, uh, uh, the great poem, has these two lines in his poem, The Second Coming. He says, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. 
Perhaps that describes uh, how you might feel about so much of what's going on in our world, both nationally and globally in this moment. You think about the war in Ukraine, which rages on, thousands dead, millions displaced, and really no clear pathway to peace. You think about the political destabilization that occurs in so many uh, different countries and places around the world. You think about the ecological disasters, floods, uh, fires, um, hurricanes, things that wreak havoc on both ecosystems and communities. So many challenges, and all of them are kind of unfolding against this backdrop of deep social division. Think about of all the, the political polarization and, and even just the economic uh, uncertainty after coming out of a global pandemic. And these are things that are just happening at sort of a more global, national scale. But all of you come into the room this morning and you have personal burdens. Life is hard. And you come into this room bearing that difficulty. For some of you, that might look like uh, threatened health. For others of you, um, it might be uh, uncertainty about employment or economic strains or relational breakdown. And you come into this room and you have these global challenges compounded by your personal challenges, and you might feel this uh, temptation to despair, this temptation to wonder, if God is real, where is he? Does he care about me? And, and I would say it's interesting that uh, the pollsters are showing that, and in general, the U.S. has become much more pessimistic heading into uh, this year. There was a study in clinical psychological science uh, done in 2022 which showed that pessimism is on the rise and it's, uh, it's shared across racial, economic, and ideological divides. In April, the, an author in the Wall Street Journal summarized the findings by saying, quote, pessimism is the one thing that Americans can agree on. <laughs> and so we're feeling it, right? You're, you're feeling the vulnerability of living in a fallen world. You're feeling the pressures. And this might be tempting you toward anxious feel, fear. And so this is the question to consider. When things are falling apart, where do you look to find the center? that will hold. When you hear of 36 people killed in a wildfire in Maui, a place that should be paradise, uh, when you think about entering into another, another election cycle and all uh, that you're going to have to deal with and think through, where do you look for safety and for strength? When you think about your own uh, personal problems, that diagnosis, the notification from the bank, where are you going to look for strength? Well, here in Psalm 46, the sons of Korah are giving you a solution. And their solution is actually quite simple. Do not fear, but trust God. Now, I think for some of us this morning, that might be too simple. Uh, that's it. That's what you have for me, preacher man. Uh, just trust God. Don't be afraid. I've heard that one before. I, I, my fears are so tangible, so real. Can you give me anything else? Is that all you have to say to me? Just don't be afraid. Trust in God. It can feel trite. It can feel shallow. But how do you know that God really is trustworthy? Well, the reason why I love this psalm so much is because the sons of Korah don't just say, trust God and send you on your way, but they give you reasons to trust God. The sons of Korah demonstrate for us in Psalm 46 that God really is trustworthy. 
And I think there are two ways in which this psalm demonstrates for us the trustworthiness of God. And and those are the two things that I want us to to think about together this morning. And they are that that God is, is with us and God is over us. And because God is with you and because God is over you, therefore you do not need to be afraid, but you can trust him. And so let's think about these two aspects of God, that he is both with us and he is over us. The first thing to see is that God is with you and he is with you no matter how bad it gets. As you read this psalm or as you listen to this psalm being read, uh, it's pretty bad. The psalmists are describing really a world that is coming apart at the seams. Uh, Chaos is threatening to overthrow the natural order. You can look again at verses 2 to 3 where we read about these mountains which are falling into the depths of the sea. The mountains for the ancients were things that were immovable. In a world of so much uncertainty, the ancients would look to the mountains and they'd say, well, at least they're still standing. The mountains are still there. They were a fixed point of reference, a reference point for strength and stability and certainty. And yet here, the psalmist says, they're falling into the sea. The mountains are falling into the sea. And not only that, there is a sea which is raging and foaming. It's transgressing its boundaries and pushing into the world. It's chaos. And as I read this psalm, it reminded me of uh, Superstorm Sandy. Uh, this was back in 2012, uh, the second uh, costliest hurricane on record in history. And you remember just how devastating the effects were. We I live in Middlesex County, which is a little closer to the shoreline. Uh, and I remember just seeing this footage of, of the ocean just pouring over the boardwalk and rushing into homes. And you look at that and you think, this is not how it is supposed to be. I recall driving home and there was a trampoline, like a full-size trampoline, just sitting in a tree. The wind, so powerful to lift this trampoline and send it nesting into a tree. And the power of nature is a remarkably frightening thing. And what's so ironic about our our moment is that as 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 a society, we've grown so much in our understanding of nature. We've grown so much in our ability to describe how it works, and yet it seems like there's so little that we can do to control it. In fact, the more that we grow in our awareness of nature's power, the more fearful we are because we realize this is what we are up against. So whether a hurricane or a fire or a virus, you see nature wielding its power. And nature, of course, the destructiveness, the chaos, it doesn't just stay in the natural world, but it also permeates into the realm of nations and human affairs. You look down at verse 6, And we see that not only are the uh, waters in uproar, but the nations are in uproar. Right? You have roaring waters and you have roaring rulers, and both of them are conspiring to make a big mess. And we know that so often uh, the power that is invested in nations oftentimes is wielded not for the benefit of the masses. And this is especially true for God's people. If you were to just go on the website Voice of the Martyrs, You could read article after article of of people of God throughout the world who are being persecuted, even put to death, by uh, people in power because of the Christ that they proclaim. The uproar of the nations is is far often 
uh, is often a, a roar against God's people. And so I'm pointing all this out to, to help us see that the sons of Korah are not Pollyannish. They're not being blissfully ignorant, just kind of trust God. They understand life is hard. Things go wrong. The world can feel like it is coming undone. They, they grasp the uncertainty, the devastation that all of us are threatened by. And yet, even still, what do they say in verse 2? They say, we will not fear. Why? Because God is our ever-present help in trouble. God is himself our refuge and our strength. You know, what's so striking about this uh, comment here is that the psalmists don't say, God will help you if you can get into a strong refuge. They don't say, uh, God will help you if, first of all, you sort of strengthen yourself and get to a place, and then he'll come along and assist. You know, a lot of us spend a good portion of our lives trying to build refuges. We try to build fortresses for ourselves. And so we accumulate wealth. Uh, we accumulate skills. We, we build out a diverse financial portfolio. We try to have a clean uh, bill of health. We try to climb the ladder of society to have good social standing, to have access and comfort and care. And all of us in this room are trying to find safety. We're trying to find a refuge. We're trying to find strength. And that might look like a variety of things, whether physical or financial or social. And this is the default setting of the human heart. You're trying to save yourself. And so you hear things like, uh, people will say things, God helps those who help themselves. Has anyone ever heard that? Well, that's very far from anything that the Bible would offer to us as uh, a way of truth. God helps those who help himself. Not so. Rather, God himself is your help. God himself is your refuge. God himself is your strength. It is not God plus some other thing. And I, and I fear that for many of us, uh, this, this kind of God plus mentality can threaten us, e even the most faithful of us. You know, I've talked to many well-meaning Christians, and they'll say things like, it's very good, it's important to trust in God, but you really need to fill in the blank, save for retirement. You really need to get that advanced degree, purchase this form of insurance, move into that neighborhood, go to that school. Trust God, but make sure you get everything else in order as well. Now, don't, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that any of the things which I've mentioned are bad. There is wisdom in planning for the future, and we're called to live wisely in the present as well. But the thing that I am cautioning against is treating these things as our functional fortresses such that we say, yeah, yeah, I, tr I trust in God, but if my bank account is hurting, I will be undone. If I don't get into that school, I, I don't know how I will be able to function. If I lose that job or that relationship goes away, chaos. It's at that moment where, where what's happening is we've lost our way. Because the reality is when you try to construct for yourself a fortress or to find your safety, your refuge, your strength, and anything else other than God himself, 
those things are actually exposed to the very things which this psalm describes, the very disasters they are susceptible to. I think, you know, just coming out of this, these past three, four years, I think if anything we learn from this pandemic is how little control we have over our lives. There is so much that we just do not control. And if you try to find refuge in the very things that are susceptible to chaos, you leave yourself very vulnerable, very, very vulnerable. The only refuge that can protect you is God himself. He is a stronghold that cannot be overthrown. He is a refuge which cannot be shaken. And the psalmist uh, points this out by drawing this beautiful contrast. You notice in verse 4, all of a sudden there's a scene shift. We go from these uh, raging, uh, rushing waters that are tearing at the coastline, toppling over mountains, and then all of a sudden you have this well-watered city of God in perfect peace. This is sharp contrast which is showing us why is this city at peace well we are told because God is within her the reason why the city of God the, the people of God this image throughout scripture for the saints the reason why it's at peace is because God is in her, her midst and God is in your midst people of God he is here with you, not just in the four walls of this building, but he goes with you wherever you go. For Christ has said, I will send to you a helper, the Spirit, and he is with you. And throughout the, throughout the history of the church, the saints have always found great comfort in this. Share with, share with you real briefly just the story of one of these saints, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. Many of you probably know her. She was uh, a missionary and, and a woman who suffered the loss of not one, but two husbands. Her first husband, uh, Jim Elliott, was killed by the Alca Indians in Ecuador as a missionary. Her second husband, Addison Leach, slowly succumbed to cancer. So here is this woman, and she watched both of her husbands die. And as she recounted this, these experiences, she, she spoke about them with reference to this psalm. She said this, she said that in the first shock of death, everything seemed the most, sorry, in the first shock of death, everything that has seemed most dependable has given way. Mountains are falling, earth is reeling. In such a time, it is a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. This is a woman not speaking out of a blissful life, all things are going well. This is a woman who entered profound suffering and yet was able to say, even when all things are falling apart, there is one thing that is sure, there is one thing that is not shaken, and it is God. And I would suggest that there is no um, greater comfort, no, no greater strength for our faltering hearts than to know that, that we have a God who is not shaken, a God who is himself our refuge and our strength. And so don't fear because God is, is with you. But not only is God with you, God is over you. Because if we're honest, to know that God is with us might not be sufficient. We might think, well, great God, I'm glad that you're with me. But things are looking pretty bad, so are we in this together, or what's going to happen here? But he's not, just, he's not just with you, 
but he is with you as the sovereign king, which is to say that he is over you. He is reigning and he is ruling. He actually has the power to do something. And so that is the God who is over you, that he is this, this warrior king who possesses the power to silence your fears and to overcome your enemies. As you read through this psalm, there are all of these, these titles for God. He's referred throughout the psalm in a variety of different ways, and all of them are reminding us that he is the king, and that he is a king who possesses power. And it's power not just to bring you under his gracious rule, but it's actually power to defeat his enemies, to defeat your enemies. And that's really the thrust as we look at verses 8 and 9, that the, that the Lord, the psalmist reminds us that the Lord is over us as the Lord Almighty, the commander of heaven's armies. And so if the commander of heaven's armies is, is watching over your life, then that means you are safe. Nothing can threaten his kingdom, and nothing can threaten you, a citizen of his kingdom. And the, and the sons of Korah are not ashamed of God's power. In fact, if you read the Psalms, they talk often about God's power. And it's a power that calls us to see what he has done. And what has he done? Verse 8 says, Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. I think for some of us, we hear this idea and we might shrink back a little bit. The idea that God is, is so powerful that he would bring desolations on the earth. It, it almost can feel uh, barbaric. Maybe even unbecoming of a God who is, is love. But as you read the scriptures, one of the things that is inescapably present is the power of God and his righteous anger against evil. That he is a God of, of justice. That God possesses the power to destroy evil, as it says in verse 9, to make wars cease, to break bows, to shatter spears, to burn shields with fire. Now you read that and you think, oh man, that's, that's a lot. That's very vivid. It's very strong. But I would suggest to you that the fact that he does this should make our hearts glad. You know, when you look at the world today, there is so much that is wrong with it. Injustice abounds. And we are very thankful for the many people who are dedicated to fighting injustice in whatever form it may take. We, we thank God for them. And yet, many of these people possess little power and they possess little resources to make the kinds of changes that we want to see. And to make matters worse, there are people who have power and who have resources who could actually do something and oftentimes they don't. And it's not just that they don't do something. They're often the very perpetrators of the injustice that we seek to have overthrown. And so as you look at a situation like that, it is very easy to think, what is going on? Lord, have mercy. And you feel you can easily sink into despair. But the sons of Korah are reminding us that God has power to do something and he will do something. That God will take over and, and squell every evil that rises up. And so this really is the hope of the Christian. That there is a day coming when God is going to end the deep evil that causes wars to go on. 
when he is going to put an end to the injustice that abounds, when he is going to bring to account those who commit evil. And I think this knowledge should create in us uh, at least two, it should produce at least two things in us. On the one hand, it should cause us to actually join with the Lord in combating injustice. Because if we know that that's where everything is headed, if we know that the day is coming when he will make wars to cease to the ends of the earth, then we ought to participate with him now in anticipation of then. That is where things are headed, and so let's head there with him. But the other thing that we need to be reminded is, is that it is a work that ultimately he will do. And that even when it feels like our efforts are faltering, when it feels like we take one step forward and two steps back, remind yourself that he is God and he is going to do something. And this frees us from, on the one hand, presumption of thinking we can bring in the new heavens and the new earth by dint of our own strength. But it also keeps us from despair, from losing hope, from thinking, uh, what good is it? Perhaps I'll pick up the sword myself. And so hear the voice of this triumphant king, and he breaks into the psalm in verse 10, and he says, Be still and know that I am God. Right? It's the command of a king. Cease. Desist. We have two little kids at home, a three-year-old and a six-month-old, and often I have to run into the room and say, Carson, be still. <laughs> Cease. Desist. You're going to crush your sister. <laughs> your sister. But this is our God. He rises up with power. He says, cease, desist, be still. And he says it to both foe and faithful alike. To the foe, God says, stop. You will not make war on my world. You will not defile my image bearers. You will be brought to justice. But to the faithful, God cries, stop. Do not be anxious. I am your God. I am with you. I see you. I know. You know, I started this morning by sharing a story about Martin, Martin Luther, who at times was prone to despair. But I also mentioned uh, Martin Luther's friend, Philip Melanchthon. And Philip Melanchthon, uh, as it turns out, was actually someone who was very temperamentally prone to anxiety. As you read a lot of his journals and read historical accounts of him, he was someone who would be described as a, a worrywart. He was always worrying. And the story goes that one day, uh, Philip comes down for breakfast, and Luther looks at him, and he, he can tell that he is distressed. He's in his head. He's thinking. He's anxious. And Luther comes over, and he puts his hand on his shoulder, and he says to him, let Philip cease to rule the world. Let Philip cease to rule the world. I don't know many of your names in this room, but fill in that blank. Let blank cease to rule the world. See, what Luther is doing is he's taking Psalm 46, he's taking his theology, and he's applying it to the heart. He's saying to Philip, be still and know that he is God, that he is in control and that he is on his throne. And so this is the call that, that God is exalted above all of the nations. I think one of the most powerful pictures of this comes from the New Testament. In fact, Bill alluded to it already earlier in our service. 
There was that fateful day on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and there's these windstorms that have arisen. The waves are breaking into this ship, threatening to capsize this tiny little vessel. And on that boat, there are 13 Jewish men. Twelve of them are huddled in fear. One of them is sleeping. And his name is Jesus Christ. And the twelve come and they wake this, their teacher and they say to him, Teacher, do you not care? We are perishing. Do some of you feel like that this morning. Jesus, do you not care? I'm perishing. My life is so hard. Things are so difficult. And what is Jesus' request? He wakes up, he rises up, he looks at the wind, and he says, be still. In effect, be still and know that I am God. And what happens? The winds cease and there is a great calm on the sea. Friends, you and I live on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we have an even greater and clearer understanding that God is with us, and that God is over us, right? Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he has already conquered the greatest enemies that you will ever have to face. Sin, Satan, and death. Defeated. Done. He has conquered them. And he has been raised from the dead, and he is seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven, and he will return in glory, and he will make all things new. He truly is over us as king. But not only that, he is with you. He is with you. He is, he is more inward than your most inner thought because he dwells in you by his spirit. You are the temple of the living God. And so when Jesus in Matthew 28 says to his disciples, lo, I am with you even to the ends of the age, it's not just a sentiment, but he is personally present by his spirit in you and he is with you. And so you do not have to be afraid. You can trust in God because he is with you and he is for you. I want to close by just pointing to these, these two verses in this chapter which bring out these truths most clearly. In both verse 7 and verse 11, we, we hear this refrain repeated. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And I think these two names really encapsulate everything that I've been trying to communicate to us this morning on the one hand, he is the Lord Almighty, right? He is the king. He is God over you. But he's not just the Lord Almighty. He is the God of Jacob, which is a, is a reference to the fact that he is the God of covenant relationship, that he has made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and he kept them as their God, that he was with them, and that his promises are true. And so if, if fear is going to flee from your heart, if your faith is going to be strengthened, you need to see both aspects of this God. That, that he, on the one hand, is filled with immeasurable power. Power to subdue nations and nature under himself, and he is filled with love. The love of a covenant-keeping God who says, I will, be, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is who your God is. You know, there are many times in the night when Carson, my three-year-old son, will cry. And I'll hear Papa and, and go into his room. And in that moment, 
right? His heart is racing, his, his, his mind, he's in fear. And then I just lay down with him, and all of a sudden things start to settle down. Because all of a sudden, Carson is aware of two things. He's aware that I am with him. He can feel the heat of my body as I'm crammed in this little child's bed. But he also knows that whatever is hiding in that closet or under his bed or tormenting his little mind, that that Papa is here and he's going to do something about it. He knows that I'm with him. He knows that I'm over over him. And, And saints, I would suggest that we should adopt this wisdom of a child this morning and know that you have a heavenly father who is with you and he is over you and he is more powerful and more present than any earthly father could ever be thanks be to god for that would you pray with me our father we thank you that you have given us your precious word as one of the church fathers said so much of the bible speaks uh, to us but the psalms speak for us And that is so true of Psalm 46. It speaks for us. And so we ask that you'd help us to hear, to be still, and to know that you are God. To know that you are with us and that you are for us. We thank you and ask these things in your son's name. Amen.